Hi, Vetfolio voice friends. Thank you for joining me and my very special guest and dear friend, Dr. Natalie Lamnack, for a fun and insightful talk into the life of a mixed animal practitioner. Dr. Lamnick and I first met when I was in vet school, and I shadowed her in her ambulatory practice for most of the following summer. Despite ultimately becoming a small animal practitioner, I absolutely loved ambulatory mixed animal practice, and I really continue to look up to Natalie and all that she's done in her practice. The amount of knowledge she keeps at her fingertips is amazing, overwhelming, maybe a little bit of both. Either way, her and her practice are incredibly impressive, and I look forward to being able to share her voice and her experience with all of you. Dr. Natalie Lamnick was born and raised in Sarasota, Florida, where she was heavily involved in 4-H and FFA during her school years. Upon completing two years of community college, Dr. Lamnick entered the University of Florida Animal Sciences program as a junior. Wanting to distinguish herself among her peers, she pursued a specialization in poultry science in addition to holding officer positions in the Block and Bridal Club and the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences Ambassador Program. Dr. Lamnick graduated from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine in 2006. She performed relief work for a local equine practitioner before starting her own ambulatory practice, Olino Large Animal Veterinary Services, in 2007. In her practice, she sees a wide variety of equine, livestock, and, as we'll learn, exotic animals in the North Central Florida area. She's served as an adjunct professor for the practice-based equine program through the University of Florida since its inception, where she has the pleasure of mentoring and teaching veterinary students about ambulatory practice life. She recently expanded her practice to include a new associate in this past year. All right, let's go ahead and get into our talk, and I hope you guys enjoy it as much as we enjoyed recording it. Well, today for this episode, I am super excited because I am joined by a good friend of mine, Dr. Natalie Lamnick, who is a mixed animal practitioner here in North Central Florida. And I actually worked with Natalie, with Dr. Lamnick, when I was a vet student and got to see all kinds of things and work all kinds of crazy hours. And we had lots of fun. So Natalie, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, no. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I hope we get to tell some of our stories while we're (laughs) on this this episode. Uh, Uh, We have quite a few of them. (laughs) We do. And I'm sure you've developed many more since then because- Unfortunately, it is no longer just yesterday that I graduated. It's actually been a little while now. We won't even talk about that. We exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because that will date me too. So, <laughs> Well, let's jump right into it. You're a mixed animal practitioner. And yes. I talk to a lot of veterinarians, but really I don't talk to a lot of vets who take on this kind of jack of all trades role that is being a mixed animal practitioner. I mean, is that is that accurate? Do you one, do you feel like a jack of all trades? And two, is it kind of a career choice that we're seeing a little bit less of as time goes on? Yeah, I mean, in reality out in the real world as I tell my vet students that do a clinical rotation with me. I mean, you really don't see a lot of us anymore. I think, you know, one is 
it's a lot to keep up with. You know, at one call, you're going to be looking at a lame horse. At the next one, it could be a block goat. And so you've got to be able to shift gears a lot, which I'm one of those type of personalities. I can, I like to shift gears and go to different things because I get bored very easily. So a hospital type setting would really constrict me and I would be be very sad. So being out and, you know, seeing that variety is, is fun for me, but I think it is in reality, a lot to keep up with for people, you know, that you have to stay on top of different species and, you know, what kind of drugs can you use on, for instance, you can't use lidocaine on small ruminants, except in obviously a very measured amount versus cows and horses, they can have a ton of it. So, you know, things like that. And in addition, but that's just, I think one aspect that people kind of shy away from in my experience, but also too, there's a lot of these patients, you have the luxury of being able to send it off to an emergency clinic when you're not, you know, it's after five o'clock, but a lot of my patients, they don't they don't have that luxury, whether they don't have a ride or they don't have the money, or it's just an animal that can't be transported very easily. So that's kind of where we come in and we offer a service for emergency for our clients who are active with us. And, you know, that's kind of hard for some people that you're not done sometimes by five o'clock and at the house. Sometimes you're out a little bit later and that especially happens during breeding season as well for, for the equine side of it. But, and then of course that cuts into your personal time as well. And that's, it, it's hard. It's, it's very hard for, for that. And that's always a challenge, but I know for some students they're like, Nope, I want to be done by this time. And, and, uh, I want to have work this, this much during the week. And, so they're, they're better off and maybe a more structured side of veterinary medicine. And Natalie, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up on the podcast, but you know, you're a mom. And yes. um, so in addition to, to your personal life, you have a little one to take care of. How, how do you balance that being a mixed animal practitioner and having these demands, but then also just, just needing to have a personal life because you're a person, but also having a son and needing and meeting his needs as well. Well, I have to admit when I first got out of school, I, of course I'm, I was single and didn't have a child and, um, I'm come from a family of workaholics and we love to work and we're hard workers. And if you're a client of mine, I'm going to, take care of you. And that was a lot of self-sacrificing for a very long time. And when I had my son, it was kind of a wake up call, like, okay, you can't be out every night until 10, 12 o'clock at night working. And you're going to lose out on him growing up. So it actually, his appearance in my life helped to help me say, no, I'm sorry. And you know, 99.9% of people totally get it. Uh, my clients, a lot of my clients are very loyal, have been with me a long time. And they're like, absolutely, we understand. And, you know, the ones that don't, then that's, that's fine too. But it's, it definitely is still a little bit of a challenge sometimes because you still have your clients that you are loyal to, but 
you have to be loyal to yourself and, and, and take care of yourself. And of course my son. So it's gotten a little easier, but a lot of it is self-discipline and setting up boundaries. Sure, sure. Which is so important in all of vet med, but of course, even more so in your situation, because a lot of times you are that only resource for people, but that doesn't mean that you have to, like you said, sacrifice yourself or, you know, seeing, seeing your son growing up, having that time with him in order to be that resource. Yes, correct. And I've, I've almost burnt myself out on this job. It's, it's super easy to do. I can see how. (laughs) I have been there for those hours. (laughs) Yes, yes. It's so easy to do. And for me, I was just like, okay, I got to get this done and take care of this person. And then it just like snowballs. And before you know it, you're buried under a mountain of work. And you just are like, where? Where's my years gone by? But yeah, it's just really taken for me a lot of time to be able to say, nope, you know, I'm, I'm done today and I'll catch up with you tomorrow or we're not, we're done working. I got to go pick up my son from preschool. So it's, it's definitely, it's a work in progress, but it's gotten a lot better than what it used to be. That's for sure. Well, good, good. And, you know, of course, now we've talked about a lot of the challenges of being a mixed animal practitioner, but what are some of the reasons that keep you in this portion of the veterinary field? What are the, some of the reasons that you really enjoy being a mixed animal practitioner? Well, first of all, Cassie, you have to be a little crazy to love <laughs> this kind of work. So let's just put it out there. Um, so this, you know, the science, I think it's a mixture of the science and helping people and their animals. And of course, you're on the front lines of public health. I mean, we definitely have our state veterinarian and people underneath of him, but we're out there in the real world, you know, dealing with hobby farms, production animals, and trying to keep, I mean, in the, in the grand scheme of things, trying to keep the public healthy and also trying to keep our, our food side of things healthy too. So it's, uh, that's what I love about it. It's like, what's you're over here doing production one day and over here you're doing, uh, you know, hobby and personal pets another. And it's, it's really, it's, it can be quite exciting and, and challenging, but also satisfying that you're part of a cog in the wheel. Sure. And and I, I love that you bring up the front lines of uh, agriculture and public health because, you know, when you think of hobby farms with pet goats or, you know, even some of the equine stuff, you're not always thinking about food supply and food sources and, and public health from that perspective. But, you know, you deal with a whole lot of different species and production levels can you give us an example of a situation where you felt like you were on the front lines of public health? I can give you a couple examples. One is zoonotic rabies, right? We all deal with that, but some people don't even, I feel like they kind of forget about anything can get it, including horses and it can look like anything. So of course, in addition to Tripoli and West Nile, which are reportable, then you got rabies too, and they all look, they can all look alike. So when you have these unvaccinated animals, sometimes you got to, you know, do 
you know, put, put them down and take their head and test it for rabies because you've had clients, of course, they're scared and wondering what's wrong with their horse and they're putting their hands in its mouth and oh, having lots of close contact with it. And you don't have a good rabies vaccine. You're like, that's a hard conversation to have, but it's also, you know, necessary because I, like I tell people, I mean, it's pretty much death or, or you have to get the vaccine. It's not one of those viruses you want to mess around with and especially with your family. So that's, that's one thing. Another one too, is just when you have a herd outbreak, for instance, we had a lot of influenza, equine influenza was like wildfire, probably about four to five months ago in our area. And I mean, it was so contagious. Barns full of horses were getting it. It's actually not reportable on our state, but also looks like herpes, which is extremely reportable and dangerous. And so we were in close contact with the state veterinarian and testing and making sure it was just flu and all the horses got over it. Thank goodness. But kind of scary when you have barn full of horses with 105, 106 fevers. Um, and you know, you're like, I hope this is the flu and not something we'll be like film at 11. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. And, and that went through multiple of the barns that you were seeing. Yeah. And yes. Yeah. Oh, we gosh. saw, yeah. Cause there was horses kind of and people. So the fo- the fomites were the people. Oh, okay. That makes sense. They, so they would go home to their barn and carry Next it along. You know. so it was lots of vaccinating and topping off vaccines on some of our patients that luckily were protected and uh, were able to keep it at a minimum. But yeah, that for a little bit, it was a little hairy for a couple of weeks. Goodness, it sounds like it. And what what type of clientele are you usually seeing? I mean, I kind of have a general idea. But for for our people listening, thinking of one, you personally, but also as a as a mixed animal practitioner, you know, we're talking about barns full of horses, but what other kind of animals do you see or should would people expect to see as a mixed animal practitioner? Oh my goodness. It ranges anywhere from cattle, beef, mainly, you know, I'm going to say this, pigs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I- know if this has ever actually come up on the podcast. Um, so I don't know if, if listeners actually know this about me, but I am terrified of pigs. And I just flash back to like that 600 pound sow that we had to yes. essentially do a nail trim on and she wouldn't sedate. And it was like the scariest moment of my entire life. Yes. And they just screamed the whole time. Yes. So yes, <laughs> I I have a new associate. So he kind of takes on a little bit more of the <laughs> porcine uh, patients than I do anymore. But um, goats, llamas, alpacas, some sheep, of course, horses. And I even have an exotic client who has a wide array of all sorts of different species, lots of African hoofstock and 
Oh, wow. Got some primates. So that's where I was saying earlier. You primates? I have some primate patients. Oh, and my gosh. It's, uh, you know, a lot of it is just nutrition and parasites is gotcha. the main, usually the main culprits with these exotic patients because they're not in their normal environment and they're relying on humans to, to feed them. So even though it sounds scary, a lot of it just always boils down to a good physical exam and blood work and fecals. That's what I pound into my students' heads. But a good um, physical exam on a primate that's sleeping. Okay. Okay. All right. Yes. Definitely key on that. I was like, how? I don't understand. Or you observe it from afar. There we go. (laughs) Oh man. I had no idea that you had clientele that had exotics and and primates in particular, but even other kinds of exotics. I have one and they run a very nice facility. And and so they had basically said, please, please help us. And so I was, I'm a sucker. And so I said, of course, and I don't know all about these things, but nothing takes a place of like a good book <laughs> to sure look up, look up things or even emailing uh, some gurus over at UF. And so I think this kind of brings up a good point. We mentioned the jack of all trades earlier, but just the amount of knowledge that you have to keep at your fingertips. And of course, you know, I've, I I know we would have those calls where we'd say, let's go see if we have this medication. And really, we were like, quickly look it up. What's the answer here? Or just, of course, being straightforward and saying, I don't know the answer to that and going and looking it up. So, so of course, you know, those resources are available, but you really have to keep a large amount of knowledge right at your fingertips to be able to treat this variety of species. Yes. Yeah. And I, I'm old fashioned <laughs> and I, I have a bunch of books I carry with me. So I have a trailer that I pull. That's my little clinic on wheels. And I have my library as I call it. And it's books that I deem important. And some of them are even notebooks from seminars that I've gone to over the years where I picked up little tidbits of knowledge here and there, and I've got it squirreled away into little resources that I still pull out and look up, can't keep it all in your brain. So you got to look this stuff up. Yes, I remember the the library and certainly a lot of good notes in there. And and I remember there were some cases where we would pull those out and you'd say, well, I went to this meeting and, you know, so-and-so said to do this. And it, it always seemed to be pretty successful. Yes. Yeah. I feel that once I got out of vet school and went to some of those seminars that taught maybe more practical information where it would be practitioners or even I've been to some where it was the gurus of, for instance, Camelid Medicine, Dr. LaRue Johnson from Colorado State, he put on a seminar and there was only four or five of us vets in a room with him and a bottle of moonshine. And he's (laughs) saying, all right, ask all the questions you want. And so- He was giving out little tidbits of information and things he had done over the years. And I still have his anesthesia protocol that I use on goats very successfully. You know, not something I learned in school, but just at going to some of these seminars and a a lot of them too, I've, especially the camelid ones, I had clients that would pay me to go so I could learn and then work on their animals. So cool. Just a lot of really 
really interesting, really neat parts in this mixed animal life, even along with the challenges. Yes. And and also to tell your listeners, I didn't start out saying, I want to be a mixed animal practitioner. I kind of fumbled my way into, I'm going to do some horse work, but I liked cows. And then I kind of morphed into more of the small ruminant and the camelids. I, I pulled blood on one alpaca in vet school. They didn't really teach you nothing about them. So it's all stuff I learned outside of school and just you kind of almost have to have a little bit of cojones just and a little, be a little brave (laughs) and say, all right, I'm going to try this and tell the owner, Hey, I haven't done this before, but a lot of them, they appreciate your honesty and they also appreciate you, you know, being willing to help them and work on their animals. And to the listeners, she's being very humble when she talks about just being brave and treating things we, I feel like we treated some some crazy cases and threw yeah. up some Hail Marys, and a lot of those animals did really well. And it was it was scary in the moment, but in general, I would say pretty successful. Yes. And I also want to say with the caveat, we always try to get them to refer first. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we, were, we weren't going rogue out there, but right. yeah, when when that's the only option and the owners don't have the money or the means or whatever to send it in, then yeah, we, sometimes you do. That's a good one. Hail Mary. That's perfect for football season. I forgot who, who told me like, just throw up a Hail Mary. I'm like, okay, but it, it works. So yes. Well, you know, along those lines, what are some of the most challenging cases that you treat? Oh my gosh. There's, I would have to say, um, I do a lot more reproductive work on horses than I used to. And it's, it's kind of morphed into a thing where once again, people didn't have anybody to breed their horses and you just have to get good. <laughs> either, either sink or swim is pretty much how it goes and sink try- S Y N C H. Sorry. That's yeah. a cattle reference, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it's pretty much, uh, trial by fire. You know, you, you learn a lot, you have some failures, but What's challenging about some of these mares that aren't just this 10-year-old, never been bred, she's not infected, perfect, she catches right away. Like those are like the easy ones. It's when you get these 19-year-old mares that they haven't had a foal in a couple of years and they've lost some muscling on top. Well, could we have Cushing's disease? Could oh, our confirmation is pretty poor in our vulva area and are we pooling urine and having some other issues and when you go in through their cervix it's like a twisty tunnel so those horses are are more challenging to get bred and what's cool is being able to catch a lot of them and and get them pregnant and that's very satisfying after you've worked very hard and then they have a full next year and it's, it just kind of comes full circle. So those are some cool things that I've, I feel that have, um, you know, had me in the years past beating my head against the wall, but now kind of like, okay, I think we got the hang of this. That's awesome. Cause that's not an easy thing to feel like you got the hang of or something to feel like, Hey, I'm really good at this. That's a really challenging field. Well, and still it, it takes a village, right? So you still have some that are 
okay, here's one that I've never seen before. I mean, there's always room for these challenging cases, but then that's when you call in, oh, phone a friend, you know, call a guru, email somebody, say, okay, I got this one, help me. And that's what's great about our community is everyone helps each other. There's not this ego mania of, no, I'm not going to help you. That's blah, blah, blah. It's just everyone helps each other. That's that's one of the many things I love about our profession. I would agree. I would agree. It's very collaborative. Yes. What are your favorite type of cases to treat? Because I'm going to guess this is a different answer than the most yes. challenging. <laughs> yes. I I really enjoy some, some of these metabolic colics that I see in the field because when you know that I worked at endurance races in treatment for a lot of years, I don't do too many of them anymore since my son was born, but at these endurance races, you learn about how to treat lamenesses, how to treat these metabolic colics, how to distinguish between whether are they tying up or are they just a happy lame or are we starting to colic and treat them successfully with IV fluids and electrolytes in the field without having to refer them because a lot of times you're out in the middle of nowhere. So I feel like I've learned so much from that and have been able to apply it to these medicine cases where I'm like, ooh, we've got an electrolyte imbalance here. And I, I carry a chemistry analyzer with me on the truck, an Abaxis vet scan. And I love that thing because if you have a colic, like let's run some blood work. Let's see what's going on. And then you can tell, hmm, I think we need a little bit of calcium and potassium and maybe 10 liters will do you. And you can treat them successfully out in the field or or ship them on. But those are kind of fun cases. And it's it's neat to put the pieces of the puzzle together and treat the horse and they respond and do great. Yes, especially out in the field with limited resources. I'm sure, you know, you get really happy owners at that point who say, thank you, thank you, thank you for me not having to, on an emergency basis, haul my horse in. And then the rewarding part, of course, with any case when that animal does well. And, you know, one of the things I like to say when I'm in the clinic is, well, or when I'm on the road, is I set out to help an animal today and I feel like I did it. Um, So that's certainly an example of that. Yes, absolutely. It's rewarding. And it's fun when I have students with me too, because then they get to see it in action versus they may not see some of these cases in the clinic. Absolutely. Probably a big confidence builder as to what you really can accomplish in the field. Correct. Yes. And so another thing that's kind of unique to you is you are also a mixed animal acupuncturist. I don't feel like that is something that is a very common qualification. I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, but tell us about how you use acupuncture in mixed animal medicine. Pretty much you can use it on anything. That's the beauty of it. And it's you're not going to hurt the animal when you're doing it. You're only you're only going to help them. And you know, I I got tired over the years of throwing medicine at some of these horses and they just weren't responding. So one of my mentors who also took an acupuncture course at the Chi 
I was learning a lot from her and a couple of little tricks here and there, especially like how to tell if a horse maybe has some gastric ulcers going on when we were working endurance races together. So I decided I need to get certified so I can start helping some of these animals that Western medicine just isn't helping them. And it's been really an eye-opening, wonderful experience. The animals love it. And when you mix it with herbs, Chinese herbs, and are treating that condition, it's just some of the, some of them are just, it's amazing. It's like magic that works. That's so cool. Do you have any examples of cases you've treated like that? I have this one little mini horse that non-sweating candidate. She is, I want to say she's about 10 years old and she was experiencing some muscle wasting on her top line and her skin was breaking out into these scabs all over. And besides doing some Western medicine things on her, of course, I also started her on some herbs and did some acupuncture treatment on her. And this year, this summer, she has been no coughing, has been sweating, has been comfortable in this heat. Wow. Her skin condition went away. She's got a beautiful coat. She got muscle on her top line. I mean, and since she's been a patient of mine for a few years, she's never been heavy muscled. She looks fantastic. And the owner's like, oh my gosh, I love this stuff. <laughs> and it's just so cool. And they, they just love it. I encourage anybody listening that maybe hasn't, is kind of on the fence. Like, should I go, go do it because your patients appreciate it. The dogs and horses love it. And you can actually do it on anything, any animal. You just got to know what points to hit, but it's, it, it's wonderful marrying both Eastern and Western medicine together. The animals benefit all the time. Absolutely. And anything we can do to give our patients more options, because like you said, sometimes you just hit those, those limitations of Western medicine. And I'm playing my hand a little bit here that I, I really like the use of adjunctive treatments in addition to, to our more traditional type of treatment plans. And, you know, like you said, sometimes you just, you just hit that wall and there's everything that you're doing doesn't seem to be working. And so the opportunity to offer more options to our patients, I think is invaluable. Yes. Agree. Agree. And owners, owners love it and the animals love it. And they actually, I feel look forward to it. I have a 34 year old horse that he gets acupuncture every three weeks and his appetite, which was kind of, eh, and he had some ulcer issues in the past. I no signs of that. He, he loves it. He does oh, great with it. That's it awesome. extends our quality of life. Very cool. Well, Natalie, this has been great. No surprise there. I was so excited to talk to you and just get your perspective out into the world because I, I really think what you do is so cool and just such a neat type of practice. What's something, is there anything that you want our listeners to kind of take home from this? One thing is never be afraid to try something new because when I was in school, I wasn't into acupuncture. I wasn't into exotics, hated my wildlife rotation. Sorry, UF. Um, <laughs> I think you and I shared horror stories about yeah, it. I was going to say. 
multiple times. It was not, it was not my favorite either. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, you, you never know what kind of doors are going to open for you. And you have somebody that says, hey, are you willing to try this? And it may open more doors for you. And I highly encourage everyone to at some point, and you're going to reach this point, do the acupuncture course. It, I just think it makes you a better better doctor. You're more in tune with your patients and it, it just, it always helps them. Even if they're waiting to pass on and they just need a little bit of peace before they leave. It's such a blessing to do for them. And, and people of course, appreciate that for them as well. And the last thing I think is be kind to yourself, obviously work hard, but also find that balance and find something. I tell my students this, find something that's not animal related, that that's your thing, your hobby, where you can use a different part of your brain and get, get some stress relief or peace and, and take care of yourself out there. There's way too many mental health issues and, you know, it's, it's, the world is getting more and more stressful. So it's definitely not kind to us, especially in this kind of profession we're in, where we're compassionate and caring, but definitely put those boundaries up and you can be kind and nice about it and, and say, I'm sorry, I'm not available, but here's some other options and we can circle back with you on, you know, Monday or whatever. I think that's great advice for all of us because you know, many of us in this profession, our instinct is when, when someone says help, we want to go help, Yes, especially when, when there's an animal involved. And so making sure, you know, we, we talk about the oxygen mask analogy, but really remembering that we can't help anybody unless we are okay ourselves. Correct. Yes, exactly. And you feel guilty. I get it. I've felt guilty a lot, but you have to, at some point, just, you know, I I can't help everybody and I'm going to help the people I can, but you have to be kind to yourself and love yourself. Absolutely. Well, I think that that is great advice and something that we all need to hear on repeat. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining me. This has been so much fun, which we knew it would be. (laughs) Um, And I would love for you to come back and tell us all kinds of crazy stories. Oh, I've got a whole pocket full of them. So anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Well, wonderful. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Natalie, Dr. Lamnek, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. It was so much fun and hopefully we gave people a window into what it's like to be an ambulatory mixed animal practitioner here in the North Central Florida area. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.